You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 17th day of September, 2011. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to The Corbett Report and invite all of you, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created and conducted by myself over the past four years, and links to other alternative media websites like MediaMonarchy.com. And I'd like to extend a special welcome this week to all of the listeners who might be tuning in after having watched my very popular 9-11 A Conspiracy Theory, the video that I released last week on September 11th, 2011, the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. That video has, so far, in one week, garnered half a million views, so I'm very, very pleased that it was... It was so well received by so much of the 9-11 Truth community, and that so many people worked to get that information out to others. So to all of those who are listening who may have personally sent that link around, or who have posted it on their own blog, or whatever the case may be, I would like to sincerely thank you for helping to get the word out. And for all those people who have been emailing me over the last several days, because you have encountered my website for the first time, thank you very much for all the emails, and thank you to everyone for all the support. Of course, I don't have time to get back to everyone individually, but I do try to read everything that comes in, so thank you very much for that. And of course, once again, I'd like to extend a special thank you to all of those people who have signed up to be subscribers, i.e. donating 100 Japanese yen per month to help keep the Corbett Report going and growing, and to all those who have ordered a 2009 Video Archive DVD. Once again, without your support, this Corbett Report would not be possible, so I want to sincerely thank each and every one of you. And on the note of supporting the alternative media, I'd like to let people know that, yes, the Boiling Frogs Post video that I do each week, the eye-opener report, is now available completely from BoilingFrogsPost.com, and I'm only posting a preview to CorbettReport.com. So if you want to watch the entire eye-opener report each week, please go to BoilingFrogsPost.com. And while you're there, please consider signing up for a subscription to Boiling Frogs Post. And as I mentioned last time, if there are 500 subscribers to BoilingFrogsPost.com by the end of this month, then we will be able to keep all of the articles and interviews and videos and all of that free and open to the public. If not, then BoilingFrogsPost.com will only really be available to the subscribers of that website. And once again, this only applies to my eye-opener report. Of course, all of my other videos, all of my interviews, my podcasts, my articles, all of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of other media that I produce is completely still open to the public and freely available on CorbettReport.com. So on that note, let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 200 of the Corbett Report the best of The Corbett Report. Those who have been listening to The Corbett Report over the past several weeks know that we have been concentrating on the 10th anniversary of 9-11-2001, pondering the way that those attacks have been used as an excuse to fundamentally alter our society in so many ways. And we've spent the last several weeks in a rather retrospective, contemplative mode, trying to take in all of that information and assess where we stand today. Well, quite similarly, in today's episode, we mark another, again, it is quite an arbitrary number, but still one of some significance, the 200th episode of the Corbett Report podcast. It's been over four years now since I started the Corbett Report podcast, and in that time, I have documented very many, many things, and in many ways grown myself as a researcher and grown in my understanding of the system that we're facing and how best to deal with it. And I think anyone who has been along for the ride for those 200 episodes has seen the great changes that have occurred at the Corbett Report over that time, both in a technical sense, in terms of the microphone and the the technologies that I'm using to do this, but also in terms of the research and the focus of the Corbett Report podcast. Of course, still fundamentally, the main idea of the Corbett Report has been and always will be a a critique of the way that information has been brought to us by the establishment media, which will not go into these corners of society and will not shine a light on the types of things that we talk about here on the Corbett Report on a regular basis. So although 200 is just an arbitrary number and no more special or less special than 17 or 92 or 143, it's just another number, but it is a time that we can step back and take a look at the course of the past 200 episodes of this podcast and really assess where we are today and where the Corbett Report can go in the future. 
It is a time for a bit of retrospection. So today I'd like to dig into the archives and go through some of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of media that that have accrued over the past four plus years here at CorbettReport.com and bring some of the uh, some of maybe the less well-known works to light for people who have not obsessively been listening to everything that I've ever put out. I'm sure there are many fascinating interviews and podcast episodes and videos and articles that you may not have discovered yet. So today I'd like to take a look at the four categories of information that I put out at CorbettReport.com and highlight one example from each, which I think is worthy of your attention. That is one podcast episode, one article, one interview, and one video. I'll start today by simply commending one podcast episode to you. Uh, I won't bother to play a clip because you can, of course, go and download the entire episodes for yourself from CorbettReport.com. But I would like to commend an episode of the podcast that I think probably deserves more attention than it has received over the years because of its importance. And of course, given that we are now at the 200th episode, it is extremely difficult to pick just one episode that I think is worthy of attention. And certainly, uh, from my own perspective, receiving feedback at CorbettReport.com through the contact form, I know that there are some episodes that have been greatly well-received by the audience, and which I'm sure I would not hesitate to recommend for people who are new to the Corbett Report podcast and looking for good back episodes to download. Of course, I would ask uh, new listeners to resist the urge to go in chronological order and just start listening from episode one, because, again, I don't know if the early episodes really would serve your interests more than some of the later episodes, which I think were better produced and probably have a bit more experience uh, behind them in terms of the research that went into them. But I would like to take a moment to to take a look at some of the episodes, which I know have been quite popular, including all of the Requiem for the Suicided episodes in this podcast, including, of course, episode 158 on the DC Madam and episode 192 on Dr. David Kelly. I know that listeners generally tend to really like those episodes, and I get a lot of feedback about them. Also, the Meat uh, episodes of the podcast, as in number 123, Meet Smedley Butler, or number 172, Meet Rahm Emanuel. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback about those episodes over the years as well. Uh, other popular episodes include episode 174, Patriot Mythology, and on that note, I will have a follow-up to that episode with more Patriot Mythology in the near future. And episode 90, Our Leaders Are Psychopaths, has always been a popular episode and I think does a nice job of explaining a very interesting and intriguing part of the overall power structure. Uh, But on a technical note, I guess from my own uh, CorbettReport.com servers, I can actually take a look at the stats on my side to find the most downloaded episodes. And since we did transfer servers in January of this year, these stats only count for this year in 2011, so I can't tell you the overall most downloaded episode. I actually don't even know that myself. But the most downloaded episodes from the new servers in just this year, uh, the third most downloaded was episode 181, Arab Spring and World War III. The second most downloaded episode was 186, Philosophy of Freedom, the State of Nature. And the most downloaded episode this year from CorbettReport.com is episode 188, Listening to the Enemy, which was a very important episode and did go over some very fascinating information. So I'm glad that listeners enjoyed it and have spread that link around. Um, In terms of my own personal feelings, I remember being quite impressed by episode 107, Lessons in Resistance, Noncompliance. I think it did a very good job of making its point, and I remember that the clips and everything seemed to flow together quite well and, and did leave me when I was listening to it again later on with quite a good impression of that episode. But probably in terms of the most important episode that I can think of and the one that I would not hesitate to recommend to anyone is episode 45, P-TECH and the 9-11 software. Once again, I think this is one of the most overlooked aspects of 9-11, and it's one that I talk about quite a bit, but only because I see so few other people actually talking about this. And I do remember uh, once having to re-listen to that episode to reacquaint myself with some of the details that were revealed in that episode about P-TECH, and being left really almost visibly shaken from after watching that or after re-listening to that episode, not in any way, shape, or form for anything that I said in that episode or any of my insights, but just the the power of the clips that were uh, in that episode, including, of course, interviews with Indira Singh, who did so much of the legwork in bringing that information to light. 
uh, just the power of that episode in terms of the the information that was being presented, I think it's quite overwhelming. And I really do hope that people will go back and download that episode again and listen to it or re-listen to it as the case may be, because I really do think that's uh, some extremely, extremely important information. And I certainly hope other people start taking uh, taking more time to take a look at that issue and starting to explore that uh, some more. But again, as I say, I won't be playing an, a clip of that on, on this program. I'll let you go back and download that episode or, or any of the episodes that you find interesting from the podcast archives on CorbettReport.com. But let's uh, let's move on then to, to another aspect of what we do here at Corbett Report, and that is interviews. Of course, we interview a great many number of guests on a great diverse range of topics. It's difficult really to even enumerate all of the different topics that we cover on the Corbett Report podcast and in our interviews, but it certainly does run the gamut from geopolitical issues to social issues to economics to science and many other uh, branches and aspects of examining the New World Order in general. So I would once again encourage people to subscribe to the main RSS feed on CorbettReport.com so you can stay up to date with all of the very uh, many interviews and podcast episodes and videos and articles that are put out, and you'll get them downloaded as soon as they do come out uh, to your podcatcher of choice. But uh, right now, let's take a listen to a very specific interview that I conducted way back on the 11th of February 2010 with Jerome Ravitz, an associate fellow of the Institute for Science, Innovation, and Society at the University of Oxford. And in this uh, conversation, which is available from the Interviews tab of CorbettReport.com under Interview 130, Jerome Ravetz and myself explore the meaning and ramifications of an article that he wrote and which I reposted to CorbettReport.com on the 12th of February of 2010, entitled ClimateGate, Plausibility and the Blogosphere in the Postnormal Age. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with ClimateGate or the details thereof, of course, you can always go back to episode 110A of this podcast to get the breakdown of ClimateGate as it unfolded. And that was from back in November of 2009. We went into some depth exploring ClimateGate, what it was, what it meant, and what the likely ramifications are from that uh, that very, very important event, which really has changed our understanding of climate science in general and has really meant the beginning of the turning of the tide to the point where now uh, people like Al Gore are desperate to try to regain the the footing that they once had in terms of uh, the hearts and minds of the public in believing in their uh, phony man-made global warming claims. But uh, part of that fallout was actually, uh, I think, this essay that uh, that Jerome Revitz wrote and was posted to What's Up With That dot com on February 9th of 2010, in which I reposted, which went into some depth thinking about the the philosophical notions, talking about the philosophy of science behind ClimateGate and what it really revealed about the state of science. So just to bring everyone to the same footing, of course, I will include a link to that article so that you can go and read it in its entirety. But let's just read the first couple of paragraphs from that article so you get a taste of what this article is about. Quote, at the end of January 2010, two distinguished scientific institutions shared headlines with Tony Blair over accusations of the dishonest and possibly illegal manipulation of information. Our Himalayan glaciers melting by 2035 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is matched by his dodgy dossier of Saddam's fictitious subversions. We had the violations of the Freedom of Information Act at the University of East Anglia. He has the extraordinary 70-year gag rule on the David Kelly suicide file. There was the debate is over on one side and WMD beyond doubt on the other. The parallels are significant and troubling, for on both sides... They involve a betrayal of public trust. Politics will doubtless survive, for it is not a fiduciary institution. But for science, the dangers are real. Climate gate is particularly significant because it cannot be blamed on the well-known malign influences from outside science, be they greedy corporations or an unscrupulous state. This scandal, and the resulting crisis, was created by people within science who can be presumed to have been acting with the best of intentions. In the event of a serious discrediting of the global warming claims, public outrage would therefore be directed at the community of science itself, and from within that community, at its leaders who were either ignorant or complicit until the scandal was blown open. If we are to understand ClimateGate and move towards a restoration of trust, we should consider the structural features of the situation that fostered and nurtured the damaging practices. 
I believe that the ideas of post-normal science, as developed by Silvio Funtowicz and myself, can help our understanding. End quote. Again, I will let you read that article in its entirety so you have a better understanding of Rivets and his argument. But right now, let's turn to that interview that I conducted way back in February of 2010 with Jerome Rivets on this topic, talking about the philosophy of science, climate gate, and what the, the future of climate science might hold. Well, Mr. Revitz, I wanted to have you on the program today because you recently posted a, a fascinating essay called Climate Gate, Plausibility in the Blogosphere in the Postnormal Age, which I have taken the liberty of posting in its entirety on climategate.tv. And as I say, I find this to be a fascinating essay because it's one of the few analyses that I've seen emerge from the entire Climate Gate affair that is specifically looking at the issue and climate science in general from the viewpoint of the philosophy of science. And it takes a, a look at what this incident tells us about the way science is being conducted in, in a policy-driven environment and how it might be more usefully conducted. And this is a topic of incredible scope, so it, it's difficult to know where to begin discussing something like this. But I, I suppose for listeners out there who may not have a background in the philosophy, philosophy of science, perhaps we should start our discussion of post-normal science by first discussing the work of Thomas Kuhn and his concept of normal science. Yes, uh, I think go back uh, a wee bit before then, because up to now, uh, when philosophers have talked about science, they've always had in mind uh, what scientists are doing in the lab relatively isolated from external influences and effects. And so scientists were seen as searching after truth, uh, using uh, scientific method uh, one way or another, and it was always assumed that when the scientists had done their thing, then the results would be available to society. Uh, what I've sometimes called a fountain of facts. So the scientists would then deposit their results and the uh, medics or the engineers uh, would then pick them up and apply them to human benefit. So um, that was tr the traditional philosophy of science, uh, which suited the way people wanted to understand science for a very long time. When we come to, let's say, the last century, middle of the last century, there were two very important developments. Uh, one was that even within science, the traditional assumption that science gave us perfect truth uh, couldn't be sustained because of all the revolutions in physics, mainly in the early 20th century. Uh, Einstein had shown that, in a way, Newton was wrong and that we had new things happening which we'd never imagined, like turning matter into energy. And so people had to find a new basis for the, the value of science. And the key player in this was Karl Popper, who found it in the morality of scientific work and the fact that scientists are always ready to take criticism and change their views. Uh, and that was the basis of what he called the open society. Then Thomas Kuhn came along a bit later, and he was, uh, he actually, how should I put it, he was a very brilliant, very profound thinking person, found himself quite excited by science and understanding science, did a PhD at Harvard, which is a great place, in experimental physics, and found that science wasn't all that exciting. And in fact, uh, as he finally worked out his ideas, he said that uh, what he calls normal science uh, is just puzzle solving, where you don't ask what it's all about, you're not really interested in criticism, but you're given a well-defined task and you solve that task. Now, as he shaped it all up in his seminal work, scientific knowledge and so, oh, sorry, oh, that was mine, uh, structure of scientific revolutions. Uh, he made normal science to be not at all exciting, not at all adventurous, not even particularly, what should we say, uplifting. But that was his experience of science in the post-war period when it was changing from being a vocation of a very few people who really had to make great sacrifices to follow a career into becoming a career 
where you know you get your grant, you do your PhD, you get a job, and you carry on. So Cohn reflected the growth of science into a new, we might call, uh, disenchanted period of big science. Now, uh, clearly, it wasn't the whole story, and there are, have been, still are, many scientists who really love it, who are excited at finding new things and helping humanity, who are very self-critical about their own work. And so now the practice of science and the understanding of science is very, very varied. There are some who still believe in that they're finding truth, some who are just solving puzzles, some who are in a great noble intellectual adventure. So they're all there. Okay. Right. And and as you point out in your work, the, the, the Kuhnian model of normal science really comes from his, his background in, in experimental physics and the That's classical right. laboratory science where theories can be posited and then directly tested. But when we have these complex systems of multivariate interactions in a dynamic yep. system like the climate, scientists have to yep. rely on modeling in order to understand what's happening. So is yep. this moving away from lab certainty to model uncertainty one of the defining features of post-normal science? Uh, I think you put it extremely well, yeah. Where, and I think if you look at the, some of the critics of, of, of what I've written here, there are some people who still find this very hard to hold on to, uh, that uh, we simply don't have the hard facts uh, to determine what we should do. And, you know, you can have model uncertainties, you can have simply inadequate data, um, you can have contested, in, you know, theories. And so the idea that we will, you know, get those researchers out there, they will find the facts, they'll tell us what to do. It works to some extent, sometimes more, sometimes less. And uh, this is where Sylvia Fontovich and I uh, got this idea of a new sets of problems and new sorts of practice. Well, tell us about that concept and, and how you came to develop it. Yeah. Well, we had already been working on the management of uncertainty in scientific, scientific information. Uh, this is a problem that we came upon independently, and then when we first got together in the early 80s, we realized or we decided that uh, for most scientists, the management of uncertainty was not very not done very well at all. Uh, and uh, how should I put it? In the classic experimental sciences, people thought, well, if you just put on the error bars, then you know that's enough. And we found also that in the more complex sciences, sometimes people didn't even know about error bars. Uh, and I think a lot of social science and economics, even some environmental science, people simply didn't understand what uncertainty is and how it has to be managed. And even now, you'll find you know, many influential people saying, well, the task for science is to reduce uncertainty and then we will really know, when in fact uncertainty can frequently not be reduced. So we developed a system for characterizing uncertainty, uh, and as I said in my essay, this is now the practice of uh, knowledge quality assessment that our colleagues in Holland are doing. Now, as we were shaping that up, we came to see the problem was more general than just you know the uncertainty in results, and so we saw from what was going around us in environmental science that you have to have a new practice which relates to these new sorts of problems where the science is not definitive. So we tried to think of a name for it. It took about five years of trying different names before we settled on post-normal science. And the key to the idea is, uh, in fact, the way we made it understandable was to imagine You know, there's this old, safe puzzle solving, we call it applied science, which is routine and which I have to say is the overwhelming majority of the work that is done 
In other words, in our civilization, we depend on routine research and monitoring and testing to keep the whole show going. If we didn't have that, it would fall apart. In other words, by and large, our technological machine works extremely well because so much of it can be done in can be built and maintained in a normal science way. So I should say I never joined in with those sociologists who were attacking all of science and saying it was nothing but negotiation or whatever, because we always knew that there is this overwhelming mass of problems which require solid, old-fashioned science for their management. Okay, But then we went and we saw a link to uh, what we call professional consultancy. Uh, and that came actually from my awareness that uh, surgeons get paid a lot more than researchers. And you say, well, why? And one answer is because they kill people. Uh, that a researcher can make mistakes and it only wastes a bit of resources or whatever, whereas if you are a surgeon or a senior engineer, you are out there where it is less certain and where also you can do a lot of harm. And so your true professional has a need for a more, uh, what should we say, for more wisdom in his work and also certain moral qualities. And so then we saw there's uh, that, and, and, and that person will use science, but use it in the context of his judgments or her judgments. So that was the link through to these new sorts of problems where either the value commitments are very intense or the factual basis is very insecure. And then we say, well, what sorts of people need to be involved in that? And that's where we made this fairly bold statement that we need an extended peer community. Uh, in other words, in principle, anyone who is affected by uh, a science policy issue has a right and, in a sense, a duty and a responsibility to join in. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we take opinion polls on what, on you know, how to do research. Uh, we live in a real world. But what we have seen by practice is that when you get a community involved, they can become quite competent on particular aspects of the whole problem. And I think, as I said in the article, even the definition of the problem is a partly political act. I mean, in that little book you quoted, I mentioned road safety. I mean, we're all for road safety, but do we mean for people who are inside cars, or do we mean people who are on walking? Do we mean cyclists? And in every case, the risk problem is different, and the issue, how the issue is defined will determine what are the priorities for research, what are the problems being studied. I mean, just as if you're worried about people inside the cars, you will have safety belts and airbags. If you're worried about the people getting hit by the cars, you'll redesign the cars or have speed limits. So any practical problem involving society will have this political element and where the experts themselves cannot, uh, are not qualified or competent to define the problem in its totality. So that's why we speak of the extended peer community. And also we have found in the course of many, many debates uh, that you can dig quite deeply into the uh, definition of the problem, the techniques for research with people who build up their own expertise. And we've had this in medical studies. Uh, people can criticize the statistical methodology, all that sort of thing. And finally, uh, there's the question of who owns the, uh, the results and what happens to them. And again, this is partly property, it's partly politics. So I don't want to go on at too great length, but the point I want to make is that when you have science injected into policy, it becomes part of a policy process and is actually improved by being subjected to democratic processes where they're appropriate. Now, 
I know as well as you do that this can all be abused and that you can have political, populist, or corrupt politicians' pressures on distorting the scientific effort. We've seen plenty of this. My point is, this happens anyway, so let's understand it and do it right. Okay? So that is where we got to post-normal science. Enough. Right. So, so bringing this back specifically to, to climate science, then, um, right. for, in the essay, you talk about some of the in uncertainties that are involved in, in climate science and, and that yeah. are not uh, often dealt with explicitly by the scientists yeah. who are working in the field. And you gave an example, yeah. for example, the, uh, the forcing factor relating the increase in mean That's temperature right. to a doubling of CO2. What, what are yeah. some of the uh, examples of uncertainties that climate modelers and climate scientists deal with and, and, or fail to deal with? And how how does that affect the science? Well, I'll take the forcing factor because uh, just now a friend sent to me a very critical review by Joe Rom, who I suppose is quite well known uh, on the other side. And he points out that people have really looked very hard at the forcing factor and indeed that the forcing factor could quite possibly be much higher than three, which would then lead to a total catastrophe. And I totally agree with all that. He doesn't address my point that if you feed a number like 2.75 into a model and get certain results out, and these models are typically, you know, it's parts per million as against uh, temperature rise. Those parts per million are usually quoted to the nearest five parts, like 285 or 350, something like that. Now, I'm really coming at this somewhat from the outside, and I may be proved wrong, but what I haven't seen is a study of the sensitivity of those models to the uncertainties in the forcing factor input. And uh, if you really say, well, here we have an input which can vary through a factor of three, maybe five, then what sort of uncertainties, what sort of error bars are appropriate in the output? Now, it may very well be that if that is put through, the outputs then become very uncertain uh, and then the people, the, if you wish, the, I don't want to call them alarmists, but let's say the people who are very concerned will be able to say, wow, it is quite possible that, you know, we're going to be boiling or roasting. However, what we find now, and I think the Stern report shows this, is that there has been an attempt to give quite precise outputs uh, let's say, for the temperature rise, and of course then translate those into quite precise uh, economic policies. Now, uh, this all goes way back into what I was doing with Sylvia Fontovich 25 years ago, and I'm just saying that this is really not good science, that if you suppress the uncertainties, sooner or later someone's going to say your outputs are not reliable. So we, we can stick to that one at the moment. And, and the implication... And because, I, as I say, Joe Rahm really went to town on me, and he didn't address that issue. Well, the, the implication then is, is really that these uncertainties are, are either not being addressed or, or not being addressed fully because there is that, uh, that public policy motive dr driving the science itself. That's right. And, you know, as I think I say in the essay, the, the public and the politician want certainty, uh, want simple results, and the pressure on the scientist is to provide them. And, uh, and uh, as I say earlier in the essay, you know, you really have two different languages there. Uh, you have the language of cautious uh, science where you have all the uncertainties up front, and then you have the language of political decision where in the last resort, you must ride through the uncertainties, and it's very tempting to suppress them. And they, they're, they're different. And, I mean, uh, I, you know, I was writing a very brief, carefully, although not perfectly designed essay, uh, in all sorts of policy domains, you will have this clash of cultures where... Uh, the scientists know the uncertainties and the politicians or policymakers don't want to know them. And then you can have a, a mess, shall I say. 
And I think I made it pretty clear that uh, it's very difficult for a committed scientist to avoid becoming what Roger Pilker has called a, a stealth advocate. Very difficult indeed. Right, and you also use the term evangelical science in that paper. Yeah, ha-ha, yeah. That actually came from my colleague, uh, Angela Wilkinson, who, who, knew, who knew those people quite well. And that, again, is when you are convinced uh, that you're saving the world. You have the truth, and you have to tell the whole world. And then, of course, you tend to demonize the people who disagree. Once again, that was Jerome Ravetz of jerryravitz.co.uk, a philosopher of science and someone who has thought deeply about the problems that things like ClimateGate bring to the philosophy of science. And that very interesting interview can be listened to it in its entirety from the Interviews tab of CorbettReport.com under Interview 130. So I would highly commend that to the listeners to continue listening to that very interesting conversation. But now let's take a complete 90-degree turn, as we are wont to do here at CorbettReport.com, and take a look at a completely different topic, although, interestingly, one that also touches on the broad subject of philosophy. This time, however, we're going to be talking about a political philosopher from the University of Chicago from the early part of the 20th century, Leo Strauss. And that name might be familiar with some of the listeners, but for those who won't, I hope that this article that I wrote way back in 2007, in fact in September of 2007, to coincide roughly with episode 14 of the podcast, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, well, this, uh, this article that I wrote maybe introduces the idea of Leo Strauss and how it connects into 9-11. So... This is an article which, again, is only available from the Articles tab of CorbettReport.com by clicking on the 2007 Article Archive button, and from that you'll get a giant image from which you can select this article. It's called Neo Connecting the Dots, and it was published again on September 1st, 2007. So I'll put a direct link in the documentation section for today's episode, but I would suggest exploring some of the article archives, because those articles are not actually searchable from the search box on the front the top front of CorbettReport.com. I generally recommend that people use the search box to look for things that I've talked about in the past, but because these old-style CorbettReport.com articles from the original CorbettReport.com servers have not been in entered into the database that underlies the new CorbettReport.com look and feel, they are not searchable. So all of these uh, wonderful articles, there are some very nice uh, hidden gems, I think, back in their archives, that, uh, that can't be found just through a search. So you actually have to go through the 2007 article archive and the 2008 article archive and the 2009 article archive and the 2010 article archive to, to really find some of these, uh, these articles. And there are a great many. There are hundreds and hundreds in the, in the back catalog. So today I'd like to take a look at this particular one. Again, it's called Leo Strauss, The Noble Lie and 9-11, Neo Connecting the Dots. Quote, There have already been numerous articles connecting Leo Strauss, the father of the neocon cabal behind the Bush administration, to the various mendacities of the Bush administration. Seymour Hirsch got the ball rolling with a landmark New Yorker article which made the connection between the Pentagon's Office of Special Plans and the Straussian neocons. The Office of Special Plans was the now infamous office set up in the Pentagon for cherry-picking evidence to create the case against Iraq in the run-up to the war. The group was headed by Abram Shulsky, a Straussian scholar, and gave much credence to Ahmed Chalabi, the once darling of the neocons who became persona non grata in Washington after it became apparent he was a fraudster who was passing American military secrets to Iran. As Hirsch pointed out in his article, Shulsky's adherence to Strauss was not a trivial concern. As Shulsky himself wrote in a scholarly article he co-wrote on Strauss and intelligence gathering, Strauss's philosophy suggests that deception is the norm in political life, and the hope to say nothing of the expectation of establishing a politics that can dispense with it is the exception. After Hirsch published his article, the floodgates were open and numerous articles appeared connecting Strauss's idea of the noble lie, expounded on in an informative interview with political philosopher Shadia Drury, to the run-up to the war in Iraq, including pieces in Alternate, Counterpunch, the International Herald Tribune, and even The Straight Dope. The article also inspired a defense of Strauss and the neocons from the neocon publication, The Weekly Standard. Most of these articles echoed Hirsch in connecting the neocons' propensity to lie about intelligence with Strauss's idea that the elite must obscure reality behind noble lies and pious frauds in order to inflict their will on the unwashed masses. Some saw Strauss in the rhetoric employed by the Bush administration in their execution of the war on terror. 
regime being Strauss's preferred term for the Aristotelian category corresponding to the essence of a state, thus regime change. Some even pointed to Strauss's fascist tendencies, odd enough for one who had fled Nazi persecution, but identifiable nonetheless. What few of the left gatekeepers who were happy to jump on the neocon strauss iraq lie connection have done, however, is apply their reasoning to the single greatest lie of the Bush administration, 9-11. The reasoning is simple enough. An administration that has lied about their election, Iraq's WMD, the likely result of overthrowing Saddam, Abu Ghraib, NSA spying, and, as the latest episode of The Corporate Report makes clear, i.e. episode 14, the existence of Al-Qaeda itself, might also be lying about the defining event of their time in power, 9-11. It is not difficult to see how the 9-11 lie would have benefited this group of power-hungry proto-fascists. The motivation was identified by Hirsch in his article. Hirsch quotes Vincent Canestraro, a former CIA counterterrorism chief who once worked with neocon Abram Schultz. Abe is very gentle and slow to anger, with a sense of irony. But his politics were typical for his group, the Straussian view. The group's members, Canestraro said, reinforce each other, because they're the only friends they have, and they all work together. This has been going on since the 1980s, but they've never been able to coalesce as they have now. September 11th gave them the opportunity, and now they're in heaven. 9-11 was an enabler for this group. Before 9-11, they had a plan for projecting American dominance throughout the world. After 9-11, they had the great myth, the noble lie, the pious fraud by which to make it happen. Those who would doubt this need look no further than their own document, Rebuilding America's Defenses. The document, put out by the Project for a New American Century and including neocon project participants like Schultz, William Crystal, Paul Wolfowitz, and Scooter Libby, lays out the neocons' plans for shaping the international security order in line with American principles and interests. Infamously, page 51 of the document contains the following passage, Further, the process of tense transformation of the American military, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. And yet, despite their philosophical underpinnings, their adherence to duplicity in dealing with the public, their track record of lying, their abominable record in every other aspect of governance, the Bush administration is given a full pass on the events of 9-11 by the left gatekeepers, exactly as Robert Fisk's recent admission that he questions 9-11 was met with frenzy from the usual left gatekeepers. It is sad that the gatekeepers of the left are carrying on their same old knee-jerk denials, just as the left is waking up to the possibility that the neocons are lying about 9-11. The gatekeepers, for their part, must be very worried. The gates are opening on the Straussian lie and a true understanding of 9-11. Their liberal sheep are escaping, and the whole left-right paradigm is starting to come undone. Now, what was that about regime change? End quote. Again, that's uh, the hopelessly naive and hopelessly optimistic writings of the young James Corbett back in 2007, but I think the point is nonetheless quite well taken, and I think the neo-connecting the dots is still an interesting article for the information that it documents. And again, of course, there is copious uh, amounts of hyperlinks to a lot of information detailing some of the, uh, the things that are mentioned in that article. And yes, perhaps it was a bit uh, naive and idealistic to think that the left-right paradigm really was coming undone in 2007, but certainly it did seem to be that way until, of course, we got Mr. Hope and Change, Barack Obama, Prince of Peace Prize, to come along and to lead the left liberal sheep back into the pen for to continue being fattened for the slaughter. And unfortunately, yes, we're likely to get the exact same process happening again with this next election cycle and the left-right paradigm will be reinforced and will likely be as strong as ever and um, and those who have not woken up to it yet will well let's hope that one day they do grow up and get rid of their political puppet theater and replace it with the real politics which underlies what's really happening and get to the true power structure of our society but until such time as that happens well we here at the corbett report will just continue trying to document it as best i can and i hope that you will join me in that process so again that's uh that's quite a another different aspect of what we cover here at corbett report and so that's an example of an article a little hidden gem from the archives that many people probably have not read before so once again i would commend to you the article archives and and i would say that you could start looking through them as a hidden uh, treasure trove of in information that i've accumulated over the past four years 
Well, moving right along, we've covered uh, a, a podcast episode that I recommend. We've listened to an interview that most people probably have not heard before. We've just read an article that most people have not read. And now let's turn to the video archives. And there are now over 415 videos in the uh, youtube.com slash Corbett Report. So again, uh, a complete treasure trove of videos, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videos for you to choose from, representing dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of video. And again, there's a lot of, I think, hidden gems in there that many people haven't seen. And I would like to once again uh, invite and encourage people to start going through those archives. And again, a lot of the old videos are not in the new CorbettReport.com database for the new servers. So once again, you can go through the hundreds and hundreds of back episodes in the YouTube archives uh, to try to look for some of the hidden gems. But let me bring one to your attention, which is not so old, but I think um, probably has not received the attention that I think it deserves. I think it's one of my uh, my better, stronger videos, and uh, I'm quite proud of a lot of the videos I've put together. But this one is, is particularly hard-hitting, I think, and particularly interesting. And it, again, touches on a completely different aspect of what we talk about here at CorbettReport.com. I'm referring to an edition of the occasional video series Film, Literature, and the New World Order, where I take a, either a movie or a book and I explore some of the themes therein and to try to tie them into the current political climate and what the New World Order overall is trying to achieve. And I've done that, for example, with popular Hollywood films like The Insider, connecting that to Richard Andrew Grove's story, or popular books like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, talking about the eugenics aspects of uh, the Huxley family. So I, I would invite people to take a look at some of those old videos. But right now we're going to listen to an uh, to, to the audio of a video that I put together in February of this year on Franz Kafka's The Trial. For those who haven't yet read The Trial, don't worry, there are, I suppose, spoilers of a sort in this video, but I don't think the experience of reading The Trial is really one that will be uh, ruined by knowing the ending of the, bo the book, because it's not really that type of book. It's a very, very fascinating book, and I've always been extremely fascinated by Franz Kafka's writings, even well before I even started to think about the types of things that we address here on The Corbett Report. I've always been fascinated by Kafka's writings, and The Trial was another very interesting book that he wrote, and I found a way of trying to connect it into our current political reality, and I think I did a pretty good job in this video, so I would like to commend this to your attention. Of course, I will put the link so you can go and watch the video itself, which is perhaps more effective, but right now let's just listen to the audio of Franz Kafka's The Trial, Film, Literature, and the New World Order. Someone must have been telling lies about Joseph K. He knew he had done nothing wrong, but one morning, he was arrested. Thus begins Franz Kafka's The Trial, the incredible story of Joseph K., a chief clerk at a prestigious bank who wakes up one morning to find himself under arrest and his whole life turned upside down. Right from the beginning, however, it is apparent that this is no ordinary arrest. His arresting officers wear no uniforms, use no force to restrain him, and don't even know what he is being arrested for. The arresting supervisor explains, You have been arrested, but it's not in the same way as when they arrest a thief. If you're arrested in the same way as a thief, then it's bad, but an arrest like this, it seems to me that it's something very complicated. Forgive me if I'm saying something stupid, something very complicated that I don't understand, but something that you don't really need to understand anyway. In fact, throughout the book, the reader never learns precisely what Kay has been arrested for, nor is it clear that Kay himself knows. All we know for sure is that he is on trial, and that he is being tried not in the regular court, but in a strange, parallel court system that Kay never knew existed. Kay's trial takes place not in a courtroom, but in the back room of a residential apartment building in the suburbs of the city. Just like his arrest, the trial itself is an absurd spectacle, with the judge reading mistaken information about Kay out of a dog-eared notebook while a raucous crowd looks on. And again like his arrest, no one is forcing Kay to attend these hearings. He is under no compulsion to testify. Instead, as he himself admits, he is participating in the trial of his own free will. 
Perhaps you will object that there are no proceedings against me. You will be quite right, as there are proceedings only if I acknowledge that there are. But, for the moment, I do acknowledge it, out of pity for yourselves to a large extent. And yet, despite Kay's self-professed control over the trial, it begins to completely subsume his life. All of his conversations revolve around his proceedings. His work begins to suffer, as he is constantly distracted by his trial. He even goes to the apartment-come-courtroom on Sundays, when he is not scheduled to attend, just in case the trial might be taking place. One day, when visiting the court on its day off, Kay is led in by the cleaning lady and asks to look at some of the judge's law books. "'Can I have a look at those books?' asked Kay, not because he was especially curious, but so that he would not have come for nothing. "'No,' said the woman, as she reclosed the door. "'That's not allowed. These books belong to the examining judge.' "'I see,' said Kay, and nodded. "'Those books must be law books, and that's how this court does things.' not only to try people who are innocent, but even to try them without letting them know what's going on. What Joseph K. has literally woken up to one morning is the perfect police state. A shadowy world of nameless accusations, uncertain proceedings, and unwritten rules. He has been inserted into a process without his knowledge, consent, or understanding. His entire life is put at the whim of a bureaucracy he never sees and can't identify, and all on the basis of an accusation that he never learns of by a nameless accuser whose identity he never discovers. This is the very essence of the Kafkaesque. Franz Kafka was born and raised in Prague in the late 19th century. He received his doctorate of law from Prague's Charles Ferdinand University in 1906 and spent some time working as a civil law clerk. His writing is some of the bleakest in all of 20th century literature, and many of his novels, novellas, and stories, from The Castle to The Metamorphosis to In the Penal Colony, deal with characters trapped in impossible situations that are completely beyond their control. Many of his works deal with characters who find themselves up against faceless bureaucracies engaged in a hopeless battle to win a freedom that remains forever out of their grasp. As one of his greatest works... Kafka's The Trial has long been read as an existential tale, an allegory for the angst and struggle of the modern man in trying to understand the unwritten laws, rules, and regulations of society, as a commentary on the rise of bureaucracy in modern life. But however it has been read and understood, this fantastic tale of a man who is under arrest and yet not under arrest, on trial and yet not on trial, guilty of a crime he has not even been accused of, has never been taken literally. Until now. Washington Attorney Jim Robinson is a former Assistant Attorney General. He's a former U.S. Attorney from Michigan. He holds a high-level government security clearance, and he's a former law school dean, a husband, a granddad, an American. And he gets delayed, if not stopped, every time he gets on a plane. Why? because Robinson is also one of the estimated one million names now on the terror watch list. So it seems for years now, despite my best efforts to get off. This week, Robinson joined the ACLU in Washington to mark what the group calls a ridiculous milestone. A million names the government believes match known terrorists. And according to the ACLU, 20,000 new names like Robinson's are added every month. Although some have ended up on these lists for overtly political reasons, others find themselves in the distinctly Kafkaesque situation of being placed on a secret, extrajudicial terror watch list merely for having a similar name to someone else who is on the list. An anonymous agent told the Times, in some cases, planes have departed without any coverage, meaning no marshals, because the airline employees were adamant they would not fly. Another agent said, uh, has been getting harassed for six years because his exact name is on the no-fly list. You heard me. Because of this always-growing, all-consuming terrorist no-fly list, some of the people who are supposed to be on the plane to stop the terrorists on the plane are getting mistaken for suspected terrorists and being kept from getting on the plane. It has even been revealed that these no-fly lists are being filled not out of genuine concern for security, but simply to fill quotas 
in an effort to maintain hysteria in the war on terror. Some local air marshals say there was a quota system in the Las Vegas office for reporting suspicious activity, which encouraged officers to file reports on people who weren't really acting suspicious. Contact 13 Chief Investigator Glenn Meek has this exclusive story. Though air marshals are trained to take out terrorists to prevent a hijacking, most of their time is spent keeping an eye out for signs of something about to happen. They can use a device similar to a Palm Pilot to instantly report suspicious activity. It's called the Surveillance Detection Report, or SDR. But if an air marshal doesn't see something suspicious, should he have to report something anyway? Air marshals who wanted their identities protected say that's exactly what supervisors told them to do. Is it fair to say you felt pressured to fill out a false intelligence report? We pressured as a whole? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was the full intent of it. If there was not pressure, uh, there would probably be considerably less SDRs submitted. Action News obtained this 2004 email from a supervisor in the Las Vegas Air Marshal Service, which clearly states, Special Agent in Charge Knowlton has decided that every Las Vegas Federal Air Marshal must generate at least one SDR every month. There are now serious discussions that these lists be used to take away the constitutional rights of those who have been unlucky enough to have had their name added to them by some nameless, quota-filling bureaucrat. If you're on that no-fly list, your access to the right to bear arms is cancelled because you're not part of the American family. You don't deserve that right. There is no right for you if you're on that terrorist list. It is hard to imagine that even Kafka himself could have believed that his nightmare vision of an unaccountable, faceless, extra-legal justice system, no doubt intended as an allegory for the human condition, could become a mundane reality. But perhaps the most remarkable thing is that so few have spoken out against or even recognized the horrors of this system, horrors that were articulated nearly a century ago by this Czech writer. Kay was pleased at the tension among all the people there as they listened to him. A rustling rose from the silence which was more invigorating than the most ecstatic applause could have been. There is no doubt, he said quietly, that there is some enormous organization determining what is said by this court. In my case, this includes my arrest and the examination taking place here today, an organization that employs policemen who can be bribed, oafish supervisors and judges of whom nothing better can be said than that they are not as arrogant as some others. This organization even maintains a high-level judiciary along with its train of countless servants, scribes, policemen, and all the other assistance that it needs, perhaps even executioners and torturers. I'm not afraid of using those words. And what, gentlemen, is the purpose of this enormous organization? Its purpose is to arrest innocent people and wage pointless prosecutions against them which, as in my case, lead to no result. How are we to avoid those in office becoming deeply corrupt when everything is devoid of meaning? That is impossible. Not even the highest judge would be able to achieve that for himself. That is why policemen try to steal the clothes off the back of those they arrest. That is why supervisors break into the homes of people they do not know. That is why innocent people are humiliated in front of crowds rather than being given a proper trial. Journal Constitution yesterday. Recent polls indicate an air passenger rebellion is brewing, and none too soon. As a nation, are we ready to reaffirm our heritage and cast off the yoke of fear that has gripped us since September 11, 2001? Do we become once again a nation of laws? Once again, that video and all of the videos that I've created over the years can be garnered from youtube.com slash Corbett Report. And I would recommend that you go through the archives and take a look at some of the back videos if you are a new viewer of the Corbett Report videos. Well, that's, that's it for today. We've been taking a look at some of the archives of thecorbettreport.com and digging out a few of the hidden treasures, but of course there are many, many others, and it really does depend on your interests, uh, which particular interview or which episode or which article or video would be most interesting to you. So I will leave you to explore them for yourself, but I just wanted to take this time to reflect a little on the past 200 episodes of work that I've put into this podcast and, of course, all of the work that we do at corbettreport.com. It has so far been a remarkable journey, and I can't even begin to describe how 
absolutely overwhelmed I am to be doing this full time now and to really be concentrating my full 100% efforts on bringing this information to the masses. It is quite a responsibility and one I do not take lightly. So I would once again like to greatly thank all of the listeners out there for their support over this past 200 episodes. And I'd like to ask for your continued support as I continue trying to expand what I'm doing and continue trying to get the word out to more and more people. As occasionally I have great success in doing, like with the recent 9-11 A Conspiracy Theory video, once again now having been seen by over half a million people. So on that note, I will leave you for today and invite you to uh, join us not only next week, but every week thereafter, as I continue propagating the Corbett Report on for hundreds and hundreds of more episodes to come. So thank you once again for all of your help, and please join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com.